Season three of Black Belt Voices is brought to you by Southern Bancor. Southern Bancor is one of America's oldest and largest community development financial institutions. Founded to provide underserved communities with access to capital and the wealth building tools needed to grow. On the web at banksouthern.com and southernpartners.org. Listening to the Black Blood Voices Podcast, where we tell stories from and about Black folks down south. These stories honor our history. You know, they didn't have any problem enslaving children their age. So why would you have any problem teaching children that slavery existed and what slavery was really like? Celebrate our culture. Black Southerners are just like none other. I mean, we are just seasoned to perfection, honey. And shape our future. Voting is a form of currency. You have to use it. Hey, y'all. I'm Adina White. And I'm Kara Wilkins. Thank you for joining us on episode 36 of Black Belt Voices. We're continuing our discussion about Black food culture, this time from an agricultural angle. Our guest today talks to us about community-supported agriculture and Black food sovereignty. I'm Gerald Harris. Uh, I am originally from Little Rock, Arkansas, but now I uh, reside in Whitsitt, North Carolina. Gerald spent a lot of time with his grandparents on their farm right outside Fordyce, Arkansas. Gerald knew from an early age where his food came from. His papa was the melon man, and he sold watermelon, cantaloupe, and Sprite melon. Hmm. That's interesting. I know my grandparents grew up in a really rural community, and so there were, you know, produce people kind of right outside of highway, we, we call it highway 10 or Cantrell road now, but it was really highway 10. Mm-hmm. And that was basically the only place where you could get like fresh fruits and vegetables for miles. Cause Kroger didn't exist then. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. And so in Arkansas, we have like the battle of the melons. You have your cave city watermelons and then you have your hope watermelons, which care, which one do you got? Um, can I tell you my black card? I don't eat watermelon. <laughs> Oh, God, Kara. <laughs> you know what? I knew it. Kara is always contrary. She didn't like Popeye's sandwich. She don't eat watermelon. Lord have mercy. <laughs> she's cracking up. She's muted, but she's. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. my God. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, all black oh. people. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm an Arkansan. I mean, I'm a bad Arkansan because I don't really know the difference. I don't know if I've even had either one of them but i know there's a guy in conway who drives to cave city every year and gets cave city watermelons and brings them back to sell them he's a white guy um but i need, I need to go buy some this summer that's our goal and kara is this a texture thing or uh you know i don't know what it is i just have i just do not have a taste palette for watermelon but i you know it's always around with my family yeah obviously whenever i tell people that I don't eat watermelon, there is a big cultural shock of like, where are you from? What do you do? Why? But, you know, different strokes for different folks, y'all. That, that's right. You know, we're not a monolith. Monolith. Right. Anyway. That's right. 
So let's see what Gerald says about that. If I had to pick one, I would probably say K-City. And just thinking out outside of which I feel like my papa had probably did have the best melons in Arkansas, if you ask me. For Gerald, his papa's business planted seeds of social entrepreneurship and what that meant. That idea grew once he went to college at the University of Memphis. I spent a lot of time with the Benjamin L. Hooks Institute for Social Change. And the mission around it was teaching and studying and, and promoting civil rights and social change, primarily through research, innovation, and community engagement. And so uh, that's kind of where I got my feet wet. And I've been in that lane in a lot of my work ever since then. Fast forward, Gerald is now working at Duke University, where he became involved in agricultural projects. He and a man named Derek Beasley became original coordinators of the Black Farmers Market that started in Durham and is now in Raleigh. The stuff that they're doing now is just amazing. Uh, Just being able to step back and see what's going on. I'm extremely proud of that movement, but that movement and the mission was inspired um, around uh, self-sufficient communities that support and protect Black farmers and entrepreneurs. Gabriel E.W. Carter was one of the other partners. She's a chef, she's a farmer, and she's a cultural preservationist. Her recipes and storytelling have been featured in in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Smithsonian. You can catch her in the Netflix series, High on the Hog. Gerald, Derek, and Gabrielle founded Tallgrass Food Box, a community-supported agriculture model known as a CSA. But the idea started as something much different. This whole thing around Tallgrass started actually as a simple conversation at the beginning of the pandemic between Gabby and one of our other friends who owns a restaurant in downtown Durham. And so the conversation went like this. It, it, it went, how are you doing? And then there and then there was this 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 spill off of what was going on within the local community because of the pandemic. And so as being a local owner of a restaurant, you know, there's a lot of things that were that ended up being brought to the table during this whole pandemic thing, when you think about, you know, you know, furloughing staff, when you think about how am I going to be able to meet those bills? So this whole thing started out as a conversation around restaurants and how we can support restaurants. And so Gabby um, started to talk to, to Derek, who they're actually not only partners within Tallgrass, they're also life partners too. And so they had this, this idea around how can we, help support restaurants. So let's start a newsletter. So this started out as a conversation around a newsletter. As they started working on the newsletter, the idea grew. It went from what's going on with Black-owned restaurants to what does the supply chain look like? And when you think about who is at the bottom of the supply chain, it's farmers. And that's when the conversation shifted to how are our farmers doing? And let's figure out how to check in with the farmers. And, you know, there's a lot of farmers that are out there that were already in tight spaces, but, uh, you know, financially, but then, you know, you bring on something like COVID-19, which was shutting down many other businesses and the farming business was probably the, the most vulnerable out of them all. You have, have a lot of farmers that 
we're just trying to figure out not only how can I maintain some of these relationships, some of these contracts I had, if 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 restaurants aren't buying, they're, they're cutting down some of their buying. The important thing was how can we move some of this stuff out of our fields? How can we move all this produce that was in our fields? And the thing about March too is that March is a heavy growing, like heavy planting month, especially in the state. And so when you're thinking about what's coming up for your next crops, you know, you've already bought the seed, you already are are in this space, but now you have to figure out what do I grow? Who's going to help me with the production of this? Gerald, Derek, and Gabby started contacting the farmers about their needs. Derek brought up the idea about starting a 100% Black-owned, community-supported agriculture group. Right. So the way a CSA works, for those who aren't familiar, including myself, is that consumers buy shares of a farm's harvest in advance. And then members pay an agreed amount at the beginning of growing season and share in the risk of the production. And that allows the farmer to concentrate on growing high quality food. And I actually have not um, participated in one. Um, there, There is like a virtual farmer's market thing where you just buy food. So year, yeah. year round farmer's market thing, but it's not really a true CSA, I don't believe. Correct. But it seems very um, like an interesting model that I'm glad that they've made it something that benefits black farmers. Right. Cause I've seen CSAs, but if we're just being honest, I haven't really seen many in the black community. So I have plenty of white friends who buy into CSA, CSAs. Um, anybody who is interested or knows about uh, Heifer International, which is headquartered here in Little Rock where we um, record, but obviously is an international organization, they have a CSA that you can buy into and people go out and they get their share of the produce. But again, This being specific for Black farmers and speaking about Black agriculture is really unique and new. And I remember it just like it was yesterday. Um, It was March 21st, 2020. The reason I remember it the most is because it was the day I got married. And I was talking with Derek and he said, hey, what do you think about starting a a 100% Black-owned CSA? And he got me at at 100% Black-owned. You know, I was, you know, I was sold before he was able to tell me the rest of what we were going to be doing at that point. On March 22nd, we had our first meeting. We had our first box on April the 3rd of 2020. Uh, so between March 22nd and the 23rd, we, um, we went all the way in. We wrote a mission statement. We did some research in the field. Uh, we conceptualized a unique offering that we were giving. Uh, we started to reach out to other members of our community. We developed our own, like our business model. We identified some initial funds that we needed, some resources, and we wrote an action plan and we stuck to it. That was a lot of work in very little time. A lot can happen when you get the right group together coupled with motivation and a solid action plan. That is impressive. And it's a lot different from a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You never know where a good idea will take you. Tallgrass Food Box offers a bi-weekly subscription service for fresh produce. Every other week, they pull together fresh produce from Black farmers across North Carolina and curate boxes for people to pick up. And they started with selling 35 boxes. 
they capped it at 35 to, you know, get a feel of the process and figure out community feedback. They quickly moved it up to 100. And by the end of the summer, they were at 300. One of the unique things about us is that we actually, we, we purchase at wholesale quantities for retail prices. So a lot of the times when we're working with our, with a lot of times with farmers, they are working in having wholesale, like they're giving wholesale quantities for wholesale pricing. Um, sometimes they're working with larger plant farms or they're working with larger farms and then go and sell that same product that they sold them for four or five times more than what they paid for it. And so what we wanted to do was find a way giving our farmers their worth. And we've been kind of rolling since then. It's been one of those things that we've been definitely flying and building the plane at the same time, because none of us have ever been a business owner of a CSA. And it's been an awesome, just been an awesome opportunity. I was going to follow up, Gerald, because to your point, I mean, just being honest, a lot of times the CSA community is is very white, right? There's not Same. a lot of uh-huh. <laughs> so there's not a um a lot of black folks in the space and there's not a lot of opportunity for, you know, black farmers to get in that space unless they are connecting with someone else who's then selling their product, you know, with a different kind of face. So I think it's important that people see you guys out there working with the farmer, selling the product because it really does make that connection back to um, the importance of agriculture and the work that we've done and the work that we continue to do in that space. Because I do think that Black farmers' voices get left out. You know, the CSA game doesn't look like us at all. And that was one of the things coming into this is that we wanted to put a fresh face on what that is. And we also, it took us, it gave us an opportunity to play as an agent of socialization because a lot of people think that, you know, when they think of CSAs, they don't think of us. They don't think of things that even we would like to see in a CSA box at times. And so we wanted to take that time to not only introduce or bring back to the root of, of, of agriculture, of Black food ways, of agriculture work that we've been doing for centuries, but also teaching some folks some new things and how you can support your local economy through agriculture. You don't have to always go to, you know, Kroger or go to, you know, grocery stores, you know, like local chains, food, uh, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, whatever. There are some farmers within your community that you can depend on some of those fresh local resources. I was just talking to an institution the other day about how their dining services ships out spinach from California. For one thing, you're in North Carolina. It does not make any sense for you not to be using something, if not in North Carolina, South Carolina, and our, our, our Virginia with the amount of farms that could get you what you need. But also, why aren't you actually buying in season? Like what, so like, what are these things? Like, what does it mean to buy in season? You know, yes, I would love to have a tomato all year round, but I also know that I'm not about to go eat tomatoes out of season because most of the time they don't taste like anything, number one. And number two, 
what are some what are some substitutes or some other things that I could be putting in my system that is grown locally that in hopes that that farmer gets my local dollar. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, y'all, it's Adina. I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'll love. It's called Well Read Black Girl, and it's a literary kickback you never knew you needed. Author Glory Edom sits down with your favorite authors of color for close conversations on art, culture, and the power of the written word. Luminaries like Tarana Burke, Gabrielle Union, Anita Hill, and more discuss how they found their voice, honed their skill, and composed some of the most interesting and impactful writing of the day. You'll meet Black bookstore owners, librarians, and members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club, which is a community Glory started in 2015, to find out what they're reading and what it means to be well-read. Whether you're an aspiring writer, a total bookworm, or just want to peek behind the page of the brightest minds around, this show is for you. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl wherever you get your podcast. Gerald told us about a Tuskegee professor named Booker T. Watley, who many call the godfather of CSA. He is best known for his regenerative farming system. In combination with the direct marketing concept of a customer harvesting operation known as Pick Your Own. Dr. Watley is not to be confused with Booker T. Washington, who... I was thinking at first. (laughs) (laughs) However, both were pioneers and both um, were really ahead of their time. Dr. Watley and his process um, in terms of pick your own was new to the field. And a lot of experts still refer to his what we call 10 commandments for small farmers. We linked more information about him in the show notes if you'd like to read more about it. Gerald told us everything he does is centered around Black food sovereignty. Black food sovereignty is about controlling our own destiny and determining our own futures in these areas of our Black, you know, in in the Black community. And it's uh, it's really about this opportunity to reconnect and deepen um, our relationships uh, to the land and our traditional food ways. And the most important thing out of all that is owning our labor owning our labor and using those in the services to our health and nourishment of our own bodies in hopes for our families and communities to thrive. It's uh, it's really about building our own institutions that have our best interests. And the reason why it was so, it's so important is that when you think about, especially when you think about Black identified folks that a majority of that live in America, right, were uh, our ancestors of of West Africa there. We are the ancestors of kidnapped people and we're brought into this Western hemisphere, you know, uh, and um, our health and well-being has never been a concern to the colonists at all. You know, we were brought here to do what? Work the land and, and die. That was it. We were property. And so there was never a moment in this space where we ever have been a part of the plan, the larger plan for well-being of just the human race from a Western colon, like like a colonizing standpoint. 
And so from day one, from the moment being kidnapped to being over here, you know, to, you know, arriving in America, there's always been this idea around resistance. A lot of that has always been, you know, evolved around food ways. And there's always been this struggle in the space of Black food sovereignty. And I think our work is to continue the legacy of that resistance. I think that it's so important for us to not only talk about this, but look as action steps to how we can, instead of looking for or waiting for a table in a food system or in a society that doesn't want us, why don't we just build our own tables? Because waiting for our government to do the right thing, waiting for people to understand the injustices out there is like, like it's time for us. Like this is what community engagement is really about. Daryl pointed to the 1920 census, which shows the number of black farmers in America peaked at nearly 950,000. In 2019, there were just over 45,000 Black farmers, according to figures from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Black farmers today make an average of $40,000 annually. For whites, it's about $190,000. Part of that is because Black folks have, on average, a quarter of what white folks have in acreage. And all this stuff didn't happen on accident. I mean, when you think about since emancipation, Black farmers have had to fight for their share of just this country's fertile land due to, you know, racist policies and land thefts. And a lot of this came from the federal government. Land, like land loss is very, very close to tall grass food box. I mean, I, when I, one of the things about uh, working with Gabrielle, um, you, you see it. And you've seen her go through this process with her with her family's land, uh, with her homestead and how people that have been on this land for like many years are now uprooted and now move into other neighborhoods where her uncle used to live right across the street, now has to drive to come see the house, the home and come tend to the land. We're talking about farmers, but we're also talking about economics and community and relationships. And like I mentioned earlier, the episode with High on the Hog, that was one of the reasons why Gabrielle's uncle's story made me cry. Yeah. So we know our food is very um, communal experience. It's it's all about relationships. So it's so neat to hear these different perspectives from like the anthropology episode that we just aired to to now just just community support agriculture is. This is great. And we want to reiterate that tall grass was born out of the pandemic, the very long pandemic that we are, that we are still in. So Gerald says that they learned a lot about the CSA business space. They learned who they could trust and they learned how to help. And there, there have also been instances of larger CSAs trying to buy them out. We had that happen a few times extremely early, which was kind of, which is funny because uh, it was like, we're just, you know, we're just three folks just trying to figure it out, trying to, trying to help some, you know, some of our farmers, our friends, you know, sell some collards and some sweet potatoes and some other things and, and, and get some things out of their field. But what I can say is that when you look at the people that have either had something negative or people that you can trust in this space, the amount of people that that have gassed us up and pumped us up 
and kept us hyped and lifted and have supported us from day one, those people outnumber those other people 10 times more. They've been expanding. Some other positive outcomes include that they now have a refrigerated vehicle. Those funds were raised by the community and people who wanted to see them succeed. I agree. The boxes sound great. They come bi-weekly, like we mentioned, and they're curated. They uh, are filled with fruits and vegetables that I guess you could say kind of specifically speak to the Black community, like sweet potatoes, kale, maybe, (laughs) peaches, (laughs) cherry tomatoes, heirloom tomatoes, basil, corn. Uh, But I am claiming okra for us Mm. because, as you also know, they have an okra T-shirt that I bought. Uh, from Tallgrass Food Box. Oh, okay. Yeah, so merchandise on their site too. Cool. Yeah. And that box sounds so good. Right. And because the boxes are specially curated, Gerald talks a little bit about a specific birthday box that went out on his birthday week, which included purple whole peas. And that was special to him. Here's why. You know, purple whole pea is a Delta pea. It's a pea that we see on a regular basis, but that doesn't happen. You don't see that that much in North Carolina. And so to be able to provide purple hole peas for our boxes this week kind of gave them a, a little bit of who I am within those boxes. And so that's the way, that's the kind of care that goes through with, with us curating boxes. The most important thing about it is that everything that we purchased is our, everything we purchased for the box is locally grown and sourced. We mentioned Gerald had a relationship with the farming community before tall grass began. One of his favorite farmers is a woman from Reedsville, North Carolina, named Beverly Boeing. Beverly and her brother raise livestock, grow produce, the whole nine. She's one of the few farmers Gerald mentioned he really enjoys spending time with. Going to see Beverly is like going to go see Willy Wonka. Like she always, she's a person that not only she's growing at, the farm, this amazing, beautiful farm that they have. She's also growing at her house. So you go like I've been to her house and she's, you know, she's growing anything from lettuce in her front yard to peppers, to all type of herbs and and, and things of that nature. You can walk into her house and you end up coming out grocery shopping like and she's always doing stuff for me like so i I will go there drop off something maybe a check or just to pick up something uh for the box like i think the other week i ended up walking out of her house with like three jars of preserves some sauces she just made pickle relish and this is all from her garden like this is all the stuff that's coming from her garden uh there's been times where she's gotten me stuff where she's like yeah you probably want to make a salad with that let me go get you a head of lettuce from my yard she has an alloy plant that's like the size of of a 20 year old tree that's sitting in, on her porch and she'll cut you off a piece of aloe and just stick it in a bag and so like like anytime i go there what starts out as a 10, like just a 10 minute meetup ends up being like an hour or so. So I have to time myself when I go there. She's one of my favorite people to talk to. Howard Allen is another person that I love talking to. Um, he's at Faithful Farms. And some of the stuff that he grows m- makes him my, like 
Like for one thing, he's a, a pretty younger farmer within the area, and he is all about new techniques, and um, he's all about you know really teaching how to farm no-till farming, which is a really cool technique where you're not taking a, a, a technique of growing crops without disturbing the soil. He has the prettiest like some of the prettiest celery I've ever seen. And so it's just being around folks that are willing to teach new things. And I really appreciate them and what their ministry is. Because a lot of, as, as um, Howard says all the time, you know, this is my ministry work. This is, you know, his dream is to be able to, to travel the country and build no-till farms within communities that need them. We're going to jump into our con response segment where we ask you a few questions about being black and Southern. And you just tell us the first thing that comes to your mind. So first, what does being black and Southern mean to you? Everything. And I I, I say that because I feel like we have the best of all the worlds and, you know, to be able like the things that I was able to do growing up as a child, the lessons I've been able to learn, I think it, it, it has created this, this flex and flexibility as a black Southern, as a black Southerner that I think that um, my colleagues and from other regions don't have, and that's no shade to them. That's just the truth. Uh, what do you wish people knew or understood about the South? I think, well, I, I, I think one of the things I, I wish that people knew and understood is that, the amount of because there's so many different stereotypes around Southern, just Southern people in general, the amount of amazing intellectuals that have come from the South and how like it takes somebody looking up somebody's Wikipedia page, say, oh, that person is really from, you know, Mississippi is from Arkansas, from Louisiana, from, you know, from these Southern states. And so it, it always shocks people when they find out it's kind of, it's kind of like one of the things where, you know, when somebody gives me the backward, the backwards com- uh, comments, like, I didn't know you were from Little Rock. What is that? So what do you mean by like, like, like what's your, so give me your definition and your idea of what Little Rock means and what should that mean to me? And that's so true. Like, hello, Oprah Winfrey. You know, I mean, you can like like we always like someone we had on our podcast before. She said the South is wherever black people are. Mm-hmm. And really, if you go back just a little bit, you're going to yep. find some Southern roots if they're black. Yep. You know, this is facts. Usually African-American for sure. Um, so what do you love most about living in the South? What I love is I just love being Outside of definitely being around family, because the majority of my family is in the South or in the Southern region of the um, country. I love the, uh, out, the idea of, of just being around people to say hello. As somebody that has lived in the Midwest and lived in other locations, just the idea of people saying hi and waving like I have neighbors that wave and 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 talk to me and are nice and you know it's not looked at as being strange like I remember when I was living you know traveling between Milwaukee and Chicago I was always you know I would 
speak to people and they're like, why are you talking to me? Uh, yeah. And so. It's so funny. Like, I mean, that, that Southern hospitality is a real thing, you know, it's not yeah. just, we're not making it up. Um, if you could change one thing about the South, what would it be? Um, the love and the love for the Confederacy, this whole idea that there's this tradition and root that's rooted around, as they say, that the Confederacy is the South. No, it's not. It's it's an idea that is rooted in hate. And so the fact that people still try to brand it as it's just Southern culture. No, it's not. It's, it's just hate and ridiculousness and ignorance for the most part. And they always knows my rant about that. Yes. <laughs> it's about separation. And so yes. no one should be celebrating that if you are claiming to be a citizen of the United States of America. Right. It's treason. It is. Yeah. And so you, no one should be celebrating that. Plus also the history of hatred and racism. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And, and it, it kind of lets you know who they think is Southern. Like who's Southern to you if, if you think that represents being Southern. So. Mm-mm. Okay. Um, fill in the blank. I would love to sip sweet tea on the front porch with my papa. Of course, you know, I always, you know, find ways from a spiritual standpoint, nature of talking with him. But the, the idea of, of having, you know, an opportunity to talk to him one more time would be in a very, very amazing thing. And just to kind of tell him about all the stuff that I'm doing and how a lot of this is because of him. And so, yeah, that would that would be my person. That would be my one person. And we'll replace the sweet tea with some melons, some fresh, fresh grown exactly. melons. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your favorite black and or southern saying? Y'all. Hey. <laughs> it's there you so have it. easy. It's y'all. Yeah. For me, and- it's y'all. Like I can tell, I can like when I'm in a conversation or if I'm in a meeting and somebody drops a y'all in the meeting. I'm like, uh, you good people, you know? And so I, I just love, I just love the use of the word. I love the, how people spell the word, the whole night, you know? I'm getting the way I use in the emails a little more. Sometimes I stop myself, but it's like, why not? I mean, uh-uh, just, just go ahead. Right. Uh-uh. It's efficient. It's, it's great. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> um, so what's your favorite soul food dish? And at the risk of losing your black card, what's one, <laughs> <laughs> what's one soul food dish you could live without? Favorite soul food dish. I love fried catfish. Love it. I can eat it any day. I can eat it any day, every day, all day. I would probably say one I could live without are sweet potatoes. You are the second guest for this season to say that. And no one's ever said it before. What is this world sweet potatoes? I grew, I think a part of it is that I grew up eating them so much. Then I'm just kind of over it. But I love sweet potato pie. Like, I love it. Okay. It's my favorite pie. But like like any other thing, any other way the sweet potatoes are made, I can do it out. Mm. That's so interesting because like someone else said that. And I don't know if the episode will air before or after yours, but that's funny. People yeah. used to say chitlins and I thought about eliminating that one from the. Yeah. Because I mean, ain't nobody like ain't nobody really out there just eating chitlins. No. Like, <laughs> you know. Right. So what's something awesome that has happened in your life recently? Uh, recently, um, I got married. And so that's, oh, yeah. that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. My wife, uh, Melanie, she's, yeah, she's amazing. She's just, you know, she's really my, for a lot of things for pretty much 
most of it. She's my battery. She's, you know, she's my biggest fan. And so just love just her, her being who she is, how she shows up for me and others is just amazing. And so I got really lucky. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. We'd like to thank Gerald Harris for being a guest on our podcast. Check out Tallgrass on Facebook or Instagram at Tallgrass Food Box. Or you can email them at hello at tallgrassnc.com. That's our show today. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so others can find us. You can also listen to the Black Butt Voices podcast on most streaming platforms, including Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and NPR One. This episode was edited by Katrina Dupins and Prentice Dupins Jr., with music composed by Prentice Dupins Jr. Black Belt Voices is a production of Black Belt Media, LLC. Thanks again to Southern Bank Corps for underwriting our third season. Be sure to follow Black Belt Voices on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Belt Voices, and visit blackbeltvoices.com. We'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. <laughs>